This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steveroseph.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome back. (laughs) My name is Phil, and this is Steve, and today we will be talking about the hedonic treadmill. Yes, we will. Steve, what do you know about the hedonic treadmill? I know that you've wanted to talk about it for a while. Uh, actually I wanted you to talk about it, but you kept finding other things to talk about. (laughs) So then I was like, uh, I don't have anything in particular. I guess I might as well pony up and do it. Yes. Phil is leading from the front today. That's normal. (laughs) That's the norm in this podcast. All right. So today we'll talk about the hedonic treadmill. So hedonism, for those who are not aware, is the pursuit of pleasure as the highest ideal. The shortest definition of it is hedonism refers to a family of theories, all of which have in common that pleasure plays a central role. Psychological and motivational hedonism claims that our behavior is determined by desires to increase pleasure and decrease pain. So, yep. So pleasure seeking. Yes. Very much pleasure seeking as the highest ideal. And the treadmill part is because like a treadmill, you can run in place or keep running faster or slower, but you don't end up going anywhere. Very similar to the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland. You run as fast as you can just to stay in place. So the problem tends to focus on shifting adaptation levels, desensitization, and what's called regression to the mean. So let's go through those. Shifting adaptation levels means that our neutral set point updates with our circumstances. So if things get better or worse, it will bring us back to a natural happiness set point that we seem to have ingrained in us. I like this idea. Let's stick on that one for a second here because we can just run through these. But uh That one reminds me of uh, something maybe we can link, uh, the happiness hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt, where he he conceptualizes happiness as like a thermostat. We all have our natural set points, and sometimes it can be lower, sometimes it can be higher, but we, we kind of always even out to our baseline in the middle. So we can have a bad circumstance happen and the situation can still be bad, but you adapt to it. The opposite being if it's really good, like you won the lottery, it's really good in the beginning, but over time you would actually adapt to that. Is that kind of what you were describing there? Somewhat. I think the lottery example is a lot more complicated, but we can dive into that in a bit. But yeah, uh, yeah I like the idea of a psychological immune system where with minor slights and minor things, then we kind of just absorb it. I don't remember which book it was. It was a long time ago. I read this, but they're saying if it's a big enough psychological shock, like somebody screams at you, then your, your psychological defenses bring you back to your baseline. So, um, homeostasis, basically something knocks you off your baseline and your mind brings you back to it. So if somebody screams at you, that's obvious enough that somebody is doing something and you're under some sort of duress, it'll give you some sort of perk up or you'll seek out behaviors to bring yourself back up. However, it's arguing from this theory that if it's a small slight, then it can actually knock you a little bit in the direction. So like, I don't know if you're, if you stub your toe really hard, it's not something that your psychological defenses need to come into play, but it is something that caused you pain and you will kind of be like, ah, and then it'll make your day feel a little bit worse. But overall, I think the thermostat works because 
once you get too low or too high, it's like, okay, shut off or turn on the operations and bring us back to where we want to be. Yeah. So in simple terms, pain or pleasure that deviate from a normal state are generally only temporary. So that's good because pain is only temporary because we adapt, but also it makes pleasure very temporary. And I think it's, it relates to this concept of constantly chasing pleasure and getting on that treadmill can be a, an infinite pursuit because of this, this mechanism. Yeah. And I guess the higher the stakes, the faster you end up having to run. Yep. I just finished reading a book called Affluenza, which kind of dove very deeply into this kind of idea about consumption and that. Oh, you've, <laughs> you've been hurling that word at me a lot recently. Tell me about it. Yeah. Uh, maybe in a bit, cause we <laughs> just probably focus on finishing these. Ones. Okay. But, uh, Affluenza, we'll come back to, we'll come back to Affluenza. It is included in the audible, um, membership. So I actually didn't have to pay anything other than my monthly subscription. This is not we're not well we might get paid for that we are currently not getting paid for that uh okay next one is desensitization so we actually kind of talked about this a bit when it came to website traffic because when i first started working on this website it was in january and i was getting in my other site that's now a failed site uh it was getting maybe 30 views a day and i thought that was pretty decent which it's really not no i, I never thought it was too exciting <laughs> no because that's what you you've been getting a thousand per month for a long time and then suddenly it spiked up but yeah yeah. So 30 a day is not significant. But at that time, every time I get a single extra view, I'd be like elated to be celebrating because I got one extra person looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> but like my entire day was like a refresh on Steve's site, which was why like I argued actually at that time that I am maximally enjoying each view because each additional person that looks at my site, I'm like, oh, my God, another one. Where for you, it would be much, much smaller. And I'm kind of there now getting about 500 views a day that every one you're like, oh, it's only one. <laughs> it's got to be like, yeah, I'd refresh and I'd get like a batch of another hundred and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's yeah, pretty yeah. good. I wish it was a little more, you know. I mean, OK, yeah, I'm kind of getting to that level sort of. But yeah, every additional view now is not the same happiness as I had way back when only six months ago. Yes. Yeah. If we measured in actually in, in psychology, they measure these things called hedons. Again, we're referring to hedonism. A hedon is a unit of pleasure. It's basically subjective, so there's no real measurement, but let's use it to talk about it in more concrete terms. Back when I was getting 30 views a day, if I got one extra one, that would maybe be one heat on, whereas now it's like 0.001 heat ons per additional view because it's I'm desensitized to each view despite them being objectively the same and the same goes for like money or sex or food, whatever it is, the extra bit after you have kind of gorged yourself in that area is not going to be as good as if you had gone without. Right. It's almost like when you're making a minimum wage, which here it's $15 an hour. Roughly. And you roughly, and you get a raise and now you're making $16 an hour. Like that's a kind of a big deal. You're like, whoa, making extra dollar an hour versus like if you're making, I don't know, you're charging clients in the $150 an hour realm, which is was common for mental health practitioners uh, or I guess lawyers, you get up and you're getting close to the $200 area or maybe more. An extra dollar for an hour of your work is completely irrelevant. It's like $201 an hour versus 200 
Yeah, yeah. It seems if we think about it percentage wise, it's it's really, really small. It's kind of like the same sort of theory as to why as you get older, years seem to pass faster because as you accumulate more years, each year is a smaller percentage of your life. And so it just feels shorter. It's generally to do with abundance and how we have a lot of something under our belts or experienced. Any additional one doesn't seem to to change our perspective as much as the original kind of attempts right like maybe for like travel it might be similar i'm not entirely sure i haven't traveled that much yet but when i first went to i think australia again it's not that different from canada but it was different enough that i was like whoa this is so different and then china also but then with every additional asian country i'd gone to i was less and less like oh my god when i show up and it's more like okay and now i gotta figure out x y and z first and then let's get going and it's more just like business as usual almost yeah i think i think we just kind of went through a bunch of different examples for the same psychological process which Yep. as you said before is hedonic adaption is that is that what it's called adaptation yeah yeah adaptation yeah the concept i want to throw in here that i think is probably just overkill because it's similar to the um, thermostat shifting adaptation levels it's a concept called regression to the mean regression to the mean is just a fancy way of saying returning to the average the example they gave us in our, our research methods course in university was you are very sick and so you start taking a medicine at the point when you're most sick and then you get better the question then becomes did you get better because of the medicine or did you get better because you would have got better either way and that's why we have to do research because people tend to not seek help until they get at their worst and they don't know if they're going to get any better it becomes unbearable and then at that point generally speaking there's two major outcomes of any disease you either die or you get better so had they done nothing since they didn't have a comparison had they done nothing they might have recovered just the same that's what's called regression to the mean and i think when it comes to happiness or displeasure it often can result in the same sort of phenomenon bringing us back to where we were before but you'll find this in a lot of different areas if you start looking for it but yeah. steve do you have anything to add to that no i like how that that was a kind of a statistical way of looking at the same thing we've been talking about in various different ways. So it really clarifies it. Yeah. The problem with talking about this, I found out was that there's a lot of really superficial coverage and I'm trying to be a little bit deeper than much of that because it basically just talks about everything we just covered, but then they stop and there's nothing more. So I try to dig a little bit deeper. There are certain things that we don't bounce back from and those would be toxic relationships and constant combativeness. So being around somebody that's really toxic or abusive, this is not something that you'll adapt to. You won't just be like, oh, you'll get used to it. No, not true. <laughs> right. I mean, you can come back from it if you leave the the situation, leave the relationship. Yeah. But it's not saying that you're going to adapt and be like, this is normal. I'm great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what I meant. It's not that it's going to irreparably damage you even if you leave. I mean, sticking around that person will continue to drag you down and getting rid of them will be a significant benefit. Yeah, this is not an argument for just get used to it pretty much. Right. It's the exact opposite. I thought of another metaphor right now, actually, and it kind of relates to this. It's like getting into a pool that's a little bit cold and you, you kind of get used to it. You adapt to it. Yeah. But if you get into an ice water that's too cold, you can actually die from hypothermia. So it doesn't mean you should probably just adapt and everything's adaptable in the end. Right. It really, there is a threshold that you can actually pass. But let's stick to that metaphor for a second. If you go into the cool water and you adjust, what happens when you get out? Well, it feels warm when you get out. Yeah, it's well, it's a displeasure or it's a really pleasurable at first because you're like, oh man, this is so much nicer. Unless it's a windy day, then forget it. But yeah, so if you do, I mean, 
this is kind of like what I was saying for the um, hedonic stoicism in other episodes, forcing yourself to take either some discomfort or tolerance breaks of sorts can readjust your, your baseline there. I've been looking into Epicureanism, which is apparently very similar to my, <laughs> if not the same, idea of the hedonic stoicism. So I need to look a bit further into that. That would make sense. Yeah. That would make a lot of sense. A stoic area of philosophy, but also very like hedonically minded. Yeah. Oh, I have have a quote for that in a bit, but there are other things we don't bounce back from. Can you guess? Oh, meaning you don't bounce back in the moment. You can actually recover after the situation, for example. If you leave the situation, but being in that situation, you don't adjust like the freezing water you were talking about. Yeah. Abusive relationships. Yeah. Yeah. You're put into solitary confinement, I guess. You wouldn't expect to adjust to that could probably just only get worse. You know, what, what did you have in mind? Well, I mean, there are the big things you would think are really bad, which is loss of a close loved one or such as a spouse or a child. And that's probably because, well, obviously the, their death is bad, but it's also because you're also lacking the positive of them being around. Somebody that would be around to lift you up is now no longer there. So not only do you lack the boost of them helping you, but recognizing that lack of the boost would make you even sadder, of course. The other ones are family caregivers of Alzheimer's disease or other incurable slash degenerative diseases because it is, they're just going to get worse and eventually lead to death. And then finally, poverty. That, that one, of course, is pretty grinding and wears down on you and pretty much shortens your life on almost every measure. But I guess loneliness, you've written a bit about loneliness. I think that would probably be similar, not like isolation. Yeah. Loneliness kills really is a simple way of putting it. It's, it's like smoking. Your body never really adjusts to it. You know, you, you don't ever fully adjust to smoking. It just gets worse. Like you might be able to adjust to the pain of the smoke in your lungs, the taste of it and all that. You can adjust in, in that sensory way, but your, your body is actually getting more damaged over time in the same way that loneliness does a similar thing. You can adjust and it feels more normal on a sensory level, but over the long term, it, like you said, poverty can be very grinding. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. And I remember you equating it to like a pack a day or something like that. One of the findings I did find that was interesting was that we do have a happiness set point that is related to genetic factors. 50%, 5-0% of our happiness set point is due to genetic factors, which means some people are just going to be naturally less happy. Some will naturally be more happy. 10% is attributed to circumstances. So just external factors, apparently. So just where you're living, who you're related to, who you have to interact with regularly. And then finally, for the last 40% is subject to our own personal influence. So we can work to change that. The problem, the catch is that you have to put significant effort to shift these things. It's not like you just start wearing a new brand of shoes and you're just going to be having a little uh, spring in your step. It's more (laughs) you have to take like long, effortful strides. Have you heard about that? Because I actually oh yeah didn't know the breakdown like that before. Yeah, I've heard that one for sure. We always tend to default to it's all within your control, but really there's a lot of other factors here, and, and genetics is, is huge. Uh, that's actually in Jonathan Haidt's book, The Happiness Hypothesis, as well, that some people are just born with a different genetic set point, like a thermostat being set to a different temperature just by default. Yeah. The funny thing is you keep bringing up that book and I have read it. It's just, I remember not really taking anything away from it and not finding it very insightful. And so I might as well not have read it because I don't remember what it said. But I find the problem with reading similar areas of of books is that when you read the first book in that area, it's like super memorable. But then as you keep reading more, again, this is kind of like a diminishing returns sort of thing. (laughs) Intellectual treadmill. I find that 
when I read another book that somebody thought was revolutionary, it just repeats a lot of the stuff that I've already read elsewhere. And then to me, I just don't really encode any of it. Because it's not novel. Encoding is particularly attuned to novelty. And I guess that's what our dopamine neurotransmitters are, are for, is it's triggered when there's novelty. So I guess you already knew it. So <laughs> Yeah. There you go. Eat it. You didn't need to read it. Yeah, like I think our brains are pretty much predicting machines. They don't react. If we were to react our brains to whatever it is that's going on, if we were to react to the actual stimulus as it happens, we would need much bigger brains. Right now, instead, what we do is we constantly are running simulations in our head and likening it to situations that have happened before. And as a result, we're trying to predict what's going to happen. I think partially why I think people can jump when they hear a bang or something like that because their mind's like, okay, this might be this or jumping at something that appears to be like a stereotypical example of like a snake in the grass, but it's just a stick. Conversations even, if you think about it, where we are waiting for our turn to speak. Because it's harder to predict exactly what's going to come out of the person's mouth. And if you want to have witty repartee, then either you got to have really, really fast verbal skills or you have something already in the chamber. That is true. I don't have very fast verbal skills right now. I'm feeling a little bit off today, too, honestly. I, don't, I couldn't say why, but yeah, I'm on Steve's speed today. <laughs> It's a vague malaise. Yeah, vague malaise. So I did find some other talks about this. One guy, um, this was in an Australian conference, is a a couple of economists talking about this. And one was uh, Ross Gittins. He said his solution proposed was to stop playing the game of status. So in his mind, we're stuck on the treadmill, especially if we're playing status games, trying to compare to, to other people, known as social comparison. When we're surrounded by people that are performing better than us, then we feel that we are not doing well, though objectively we could be doing great. We've talked about this before, where like if you're making a hundred grand and everyone around you is making 200, then you'll feel poor despite being well above average. I think we talked a lot about the hedonic adaption and the negative in terms of adjusting to bad situations or not. This is a perfect transition into the positive element of it, of the uh, what the concept hedonic treadmill is actually referring to is constantly chasing uh, stimulus or pleasure in the case you just described status which gives you a reward and then you chase more of it and and it's really never enough you can really never get to the top unless i guess you are the richest person in the world yeah bezos is definitely stopping right now he's called it quits and even then you're still going as as you just said right there he didn't stop I think it's because it becomes kind of like a scorecard and they just want to continually see if they can beat their own score. But it also seems to me to, to stem from emotional underdevelopment because they're seeking something. They're seeking happiness, as we all are, or they're seeking some sort of claim to fame. And it'll just at what cost are they willing to go to? What length will be too much to stop them from continuing this? Because it seems like there isn't any. And you've got to wonder what drives somebody to do that, because it seems like they must be lacking something internally. Well, oftentimes it's core confidence there's a lot of insecurity driving this it's kind of the obvious answer yeah the common sense answer i guess you can say yeah i mean that that would be the the most base one but i wasn't done talking about ross giddens okay sir quote i'm going to drive a toyota that's perfectly reliable and acceptable no one will be impressed but i don't care i care about how i treat people i don't care about my status comparative to them to pull back from the status game which is what keeps us on the treadmill the greatest freedom is not worrying about what others think of your status end quote but then another guy who actually wrote a book on affluenza different book from the one i was reading richard dennis he is i mean the top economist in i think the australian institute which is a think tank in uh, canberra he was saying that 
a lot of the time we don't really care about what we're doing. He was talking about analysis paralysis. I don't remember how that was related. Oh yeah, for status effects. So if you want to see like people say they don't care about status or they say stuff like, quote, I drive a Prius, I don't care about status. But that's false because it's just a different form of status, end quote. Yes, your status as like, as they say, virtue signaling. Yes, I was about to say that one. Oh, I don't care about status. But this, it's a different set of values you're operating by and it is status within a particular environmental set of values. Yes, and I do want to pick on that particular example you gave people shouting about how they don't care about virtue signaling and how virtue signaling is something that they just don't do are in fact at that very moment virtue signaling they're signaling their virtue yes. of not buying into virtue signaling which is so bitterly <laughs> ironic it's just so frustrating when i hear people bitterly. saying that and some close to me do that and i keep saying you are virtue signaling right now you're signaling to people who are like-minded that this is where you stand. That's all that virtue signals are. Just the right has co-opted these things to make them bad, even though they both do them, both sides. Yes, I love it. Just a different set of virtues. Again, it's like the Prius could be a virtue signaling, but calling someone out and saying, oh, they're just virtue signaling, you're again doing that by signaling your virtues, which are different. Yeah, that you don't care about the status claims that they're doing. But the funny thing is by stating that I don't care about status, you are trying to gain status with groups that also would within would relate to not caring about status but the final point on richard dennis was he said if you if you really don't care about status as an example just to see what happens do what he calls a no-name cola test not anything not not pepsi not not coke anything that's no name just like generic cola and bring it to a dinner party not wine generic cola Mm -hmm. give it to them pretend like nothing was going on but just like watch the reactions because people will be like what (laughs) what's they're bringing this and it is still something that people seem to care about they will respond that like what what is this like what does it say about you people are that turned off by generic cola when you go to a dinner party yeah i would say generally people expect you to bring something like wine or i mean even bringing soft drinks in general kind of feels tacky but then bringing no name cola feels like the tackiest (laughs) of tacky like you might as well bring like a a jug of water like (laughs) you know what I i would do the no name wine uh, I mean, it's still got alcohol. So, I mean, yeah, it's still above, I think, soft drinks. Soft drinks just feel like, why did you even bring this to me? Like, uh, that's how I would feel bringing it. I don't really host many dinner parties these days, but, or ever. Well, it, and it would also, it's more than just a status thing, though. You're breaking the, what they call in, in social psychology, the, the performativity of that particular situation or the dramaturgy, I guess is the word for it. Irving Goffman coined the term dramaturgy, which is a a set of social expectations that we all operate by like actors on a stage. And uh, we all have this expected roles. So the dramaturgy of the dinner party calls for a nice bottle of wine. And so bringing the cola is not just a, a status thing. It's really breaking more of the social norms in the environment that are beyond status but that those norms would still relate to status right because if you're they do relate to status though yeah yeah because like by not performing that you would probably lose some status or esteem of some sort with that group because you're not right you're not going you're signaling that you don't belong basically or that you don't understand or that you're willfully doing this to people so yeah well you can make it about status by still bringing wine because it doesn't break the dramaturgy of what you're supposed to bring but you bring the the no-name wine and so that would be more purely about status then. Mm, yeah. Okay. I could see that. I think the cola might be, okay, fine. Say, let's say it's like a 
birthday party or something like that, something lower key, less stuffy that you need alcohol. Um, I think if you brought cola, that would be better because, or soda or whatever the hell you want to call it. Uh, the no name stuff would be like, Oh, especially if other people had already brought Coke or there's like no name brand stuff sitting around, you'll seem like the cheap guy basically, cause it is significantly cheaper and you will, you will have some negative <laughs> reactions from it. I have a quote here. It's semi related. This is all kind of tying back to the same hedonic treadmill thing, but it's Jean-Jacques Rousseau philosopher, uh, quote, mm-hmm. since these conveniences by becoming habitual had almost entirely ceased to be enjoyable at the same time, degenerate into true needs. It became much more cruel to be deprived of them than to possess them was sweet. And men were unhappy to lose them without being happy to possess them. End quote. So it became such a thing that we need that without it, we feel deprived and in pain more than we actually enjoyed actually having them. <laughs> That's like coffee for me right now. Yes. Yeah. You want to talk about that? Yeah. I cut back on my coffee consumption. I do a standard liter in the morning, like French press. A standard liter. A standard liter, you know, your usual. <laughs> the largest beverage you can get from like Tim Hortons or Starbucks. <laughs> And then in the afternoon, I would have roughly two teas, like black teas or like a really strong green tea. But I cut out the afternoon one, uh, which is, I guess, equivalent to a cup of coffee and really getting the withdrawals. And and so I'm realizing the morning coffee is really to prevent withdrawals. It's not like to get me in a surplus or anything. It's really to maintain basic functioning. Yes. I've never found that myself. I mean, I like the ritual of having a coffee in the morning, but I've cut down to like quarter caffeine coffee because I grind my own beans. So mostly decaf. I've been cutting back more and more as we go. And I don't, I have not found anything. Even if I go without, I just feel tired. So I'm thankful for that. I remember in high school, our friend Tim (laughs) would be really kind of dickish when he didn't have his coffee in the morning. And I remember Ryan, our other friend would constantly tease him about it. (laughs) (laughs) Name dropping people that people don't know. Great call. Uh, Oh, so wealth. They always say money doesn't buy happiness. Remember when you... At one of your jobs back in, I think it was early university, they argued that money did buy happiness and the way they proved it was by polling everybody in your workplace. Do you remember this? <laughs> <laughs> really? I forget this. Yeah, it was at the wheels in, in Chatham. It was this uh, small... Well, it's gone now, but he was a lifeguard, I think, or a personal trainer. Yeah. And you were on your downtime waiting for people to come in. And one of the people you're working with said that you said money didn't buy happiness because you and I had been debating about this, I think, that summer. And this girl went around with you and asked everybody that passed by whether money could buy happiness. And the majority said yes. And so then she said, see, <laughs> proved you wrong. <laughs> That's a terrible research oh, method yeah. um that was that was before my research days yes. then because i would not have accepted that as valid research even then you didn't i know that that's the case because we, we laughed about it but when we talk about wealth actually i did i did find a little bit on that so wealth doesn't buy happiness it doesn't correlate anymore if these conditions are met you're not living in poverty okay you have good spending power for your region mm-hmm. and you don't need extra money to survive so as long as your basic needs are being met generally speaking your happiness doesn't go up however i have heard that there is right. added research onto that saying that your happiness doesn't go up but your life satisfaction does i don't know where the return of that is or how they particularly 
cleave those apart, but your day-to-day lived experience, it's about the same. It doesn't go up or down too much. It's kind of like the base point, baseline that we were talking about. But your overall life satisfaction, when we zoom out, I think, and we look at the general trend, uh, we say, okay, yeah, my, my life satisfaction is, is doing much better. I feel like I'm I'm doing something with my life, I guess. Right. So I guess the happiness measure or the survey they're using is, is more present oriented versus life satisfaction makes you zoom out to a bigger picture perspective. Yeah. I think it's more like the experienced self versus the remembered self. If you know that distinction. Yes. Uh, do you want to quickly just briefly go over that? Uh, you can do it. <laughs> gotcha. Off guard. Gotcha. Okay. So the remembered self is when we look back, what we remember and how we would evaluate it going back. But the experiencing self is in the moment, if asked when going through it, how it is. And we, those things don't actually tend to line up a lot of the time. They, they clash. So for instance, uh, there was research where if you put your hands, I'm going to butcher this research, but I believe if you put your hands in cold water, you had to hold it there for a certain number of seconds, like painfully cold water that in the moment you would rate it fairly low happiness, but afterwards you would, sorry, very low level of pleasure. But then if afterwards remembering and looking back, it was better, but there were tweaks as well. Like I think making, putting your hands in even colder water at the end, or maybe the slightly less cold, I don't remember which direction it was, but there was an extra length of time that softened it. So then your remembered self actually found it to be even better than it was at the moment. So enduring a little bit more suffering, if maybe a little lessened, caused you to remember the whole thing to be better. Yes. You, you see, you explained it way better than I could have uh, very succinctly. Well, thank you. And that relates a lot to addiction in terms of when people have this terrible hangover experience on Sundays and Mondays, when they're just like very low functioning. In that moment, they're like, I'm never going to drink again. This is horrible. I'm done. It's kind of like holding your hand in the cold water. And you kind of wait until Friday rolls around and the, the remembered self, it's like, oh, that wasn't that bad, I guess. Oh, I'm, I'm good. And then, and so it lessens the pain of that past event, which triggers another kind of relapse in, in a cyclical fashion. Yeah. As I say, time heals all wounds. I did find American and Israeli f- uh, writer who, on the, who's focuses in the field of positive psychology, his name, I'm going to mispronounce it, is Tal Ben-Shahar. He wrote in 2006 steps that he's identified to increase your overall happiness and to get off the, the hedonic treadmill. Mm. So Ooh, let's look at that. Funny enough, like I, I did try to list my own thinking after this, but he just put it more succinctly. So I'm just going to d- defer to him. So one, give yourself permission to be human. Accept your emotions, including fear, sadness, and anxiety. Rejecting them leads to frustration. And that's a running theme of we've talked about. What you resist persists. It's acceptance is what it is. Yeah. And commitment therapy. Two. Simplify your life. Focus on one thing at a time and reduce multitasking. Yeah, I think that's an issue that I have uh, sometimes. Yep, that's present moment awareness. Yeah, I think mindfulness. Right. Three, find meaning and pleasure. Engage in goals you want to achieve instead of what you feel obliged to do. That's a values orientation. Yeah. Spend two hours per week on hobbies. Spend time with our loved ones, etc. What do you want? Do you want to say anything about values orientation? That's... Yep. Do what's meaningful, not what you do. You want to do that's meaningful and not what you think you should do or that's expected. Don't shit on yourself. Shit on yourself. Yeah. What's the next one? Um, focus on the positive and be grateful each day. Write down five things for which you're grateful for. Just a great gratitude journal. Essentially. Some people don't like this. I don't know why I think they feel like it's fake or they feel like they can't come up with anything, but there's been a lot of positive research that I've seen a while ago about gratitude journals. Do you know much about them? Yeah, actually doing it. it, it this research showing that it, 
actually increases your happiness after a few weeks of doing this. Yeah. Cool. Five, increase the effort you put into your relationships. So go on a date with your significant other or spend more time talking to your children. That'd be a checked out parents. Social connection. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's huge. Basic need. And final one for him is six. Be mindful of the mind body connection through exercise and the practice of mindfulness, meditation, yoga, and breathing techniques. Research has shown that exercise leads to decreased levels of depression. So as you were kind of going through them, I don't know if you noticed, particularly in the beginning in the first three, I was listing the pillars of acceptance and commitment therapy actually after every one. (laughs) Yeah. So each one has a basis in the therapeutic approach and evidence. So it's, that's big. Mm, Yeah. It's coming. It's more popular that act therapy. Once again, the other ones they they kind of alluded to was um, apparently loving kindness meditation in particular has some really good research around that, which is essentially sitting there and projecting love towards and it's very hippy dippy sounding but it's it'll counter the cynicism that you feel if you're hearing me say this and rolling your eyes uh (laughs) (laughs) it's wishing good things on not only those you care about but also strangers and also the people that you don't like or that you actually actively hate because again like what was it anger is holding on to a a hot coal ready waiting to throw it like you're still just resentment resentment what either either or can be that i think because you're just damaging yourself just it's kind of like you're sitting in a room with radiation you're just constantly absorbing the damage from it social comparisons i think to avoid them as much as possible focus on focus on like just small wins or the wins that you've got and celebrate wins because other people winning does not mean that you're it's a loss for you steve <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as Phil's website gets to gain some traffic here, it's actually catching up to mine. Oh no. I'm used to you being at like a 30 a day level and being excited that I'm like thousand, like just drop a big number and like that kind of comparison of like always being massively ahead in my traffic numbers. Throughout this next week, you might actually catch up. You haven't beat me yet though. No, not yet. But I do feel actually slightly guilty, weirdly, because it has nothing to do with, these are completely unrelated numbers. Like whether your site does well or mine does well, they're not related at all because they're completely different fields. Completely. We're not even competing in the same niche. Yeah. Yeah. But for some reason, I feel a little bit guilty that mine's like surging upwards and yours seems to be taking a, a mild slump these days. And I'm just like, oh no, like maybe you'll feel bad. Maybe he'll and I and I'm like, oh, maybe he'll fail, and and then I'll I'll be able to catch up. And this is weird psychological stuff happening. So clearly, I'm the better person. (laughs) Oh no, he's better than me. What's that say about me? His traffic is surging. Yeah, you you want me to fail, and I'm I'm like, oh no, I don't want him to feel bad. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the one projecting. Yeah, the insecurity of what's it going to mean about me? And, he, and you're like all empathetic and like altruistic in the situation. But it's also, I think like the whole fear success thing, like I'm a little bit worried of like, Oh no, what if I screw this up? Like, Oh shit. Like this is, this is a great thing. But at the same time, I, it could be like heavily embarrassing. Even like this podcast, like I guess we could probably more aggressively advertise it. But a uh, part of me is like a little fearful of if we got like a serious audience, because then I'd be even more in my head and be like, Oh shit, like thousands of people might hear this. And that's on the low end of success on a podcast. But Hey, we got 66 followers right now on Spotify. So hello, all 66 of you. You're all very good looking and geniuses. Very smart. Very smart. (laughs) So Epicureanism, here's the brief clip I took from Wikipedia. was Epicureanism argued that pleasure was the chief good in life. Hence Epicurus advocated living in such a way as to derive the greatest amount of possible pleasure during one's lifetime, yet doing so moderately in order to avoid suffering 
the suffering incurred by overindulgence in such pleasure. Emphasis was placed on pleasures of the mind rather than physical pleasures, and unnecessary and especially artificially produced desires were to be suppressed. So it's not as bad of a philosophy as I thought, because I remember hearing about, like, what was it, countries are born stoic and die Epicurean? That doesn't, that doesn't mesh for me exactly. Why would they die Epicurean? Yeah, I think it's a misunderstanding of the philosophy. I think what you just said there was a very balanced quote. Yeah, maybe it's just the, yeah, they, they might mistake that for just pure hedonism, because it's talking about, like, actually doing work so that you can enjoy your downtime. If you have all the downtime in the world, it becomes really boring and depressing, frankly. Yeah, pure hedonism is the hedonic treadmill because you're just chasing pleasure for pleasure's sake and it's never enough. Yeah, exactly. And I think Epicureanism seems to talk about like tolerance breaks, essentially. This is a list of takeaways that I had, which was the actionable steps, uh, if we want to get into those, uh, unless you have more you want to say about this. We could talk about affluenza a little bit, if you have any questions about that particular book. Let's do the practical steps. Well, I wanted to close on those. So Okay, okay. We can, we can close it, but like... Let's do... Okay, okay. So affluenza is this book that you've been reading, and, and you're, you're constantly throwing the word at me, like, affluenza, you're affluent. Uh, no, affluenza... Okay, affluenza is the... For them, it is basically the hedonic treadmill on a societal level. They kind of talk about it as like a, they use the metaphor of like a, a disease of the mind where everyone feels that they have to have the biggest or best thing or they have to keep upgrading because what they have is not enough. And they focus on how America has fewer days off and are expected to work more and more hours. And with socialism having been demonized so much, which is like collective action, doing stuff that helps people, not communism. They, since it's so demonized, we've lost a lot of headways that people had fought for in the past. Like the 40 hour work week is extended to our own personal hours. We're expected to do overtime. Our bosses get angry if we take our paid vacation, even though they allotted them for us. If we take sick days, all these things are kind of ridiculous. And he's arguing that we've been convinced that that's what we should have and how we feel like that that's what we should do and how people have hobbies along the lines of, um, I don't remember if it was just a man right now. I think it might be co-authors, a man and a woman perhaps, but they were talking about how like, I think a lot of people, a lot of teenage girls, especially their favorite hobby is shopping. And all this kind of points back to the fact that we are needing more and more external validation and spending our way into happiness. even though that that's not a winning game as this whole podcast episode is kind of alluding to, and they suggest certain ways to get out of it. And I also had some of my own to add, but now we can segue there. There we go. Segue into the takeaways. I, I like the, the, teenage girl example because it reminds me of social media and it's not just teenage girls on social media it's everyone and this video i made that i sent you about the hedonic treadmill i'm literally walking on a treadmill and <laughs> saying this about uh, social media that comparing yourself to others on social media actually lowers uh, your well-being yeah. generally and there's research to, to show this on instagram but that's like social comparison again but in this case instead of comparing to your peers you're comparing to an imaginary audience uh parasocial relationships and this reminds me of the quote don't compare your cutting room floor to the, someone else's highlight reel Ooh, so yeah. we know all the background bullshit that we have to go through and we don't see all the struggles that they have to get that one little clip that looks perfect yeah and that puts you in a social comparison orientation which means now you're trying to do the same thing, putting your highly curated images and then maybe obsessing on your appearance, which that in itself is its own endless treadmill. Perpetuating the cycle, yeah. And then when you post it, how many people liked it or, or commented on it? That in itself is another hedonic situation where you could get caught up in that. 
And they compared the social media use among young people versus elders. And elders were actually, elders meaning seniors over 65, let's say, I forget the exact number. Social media use was correlated with actually higher life satisfaction in that group. And I wonder why. I think it's to do with posting habits and keeping connected because I don't see them flexing as much as younger people. That's it. They're using social media to connect with people more so, not always, but more often they're using it to keep in touch with family or, or peers. Yeah, that's basically all I use most of my social media for. Uh, yeah. So as you're getting older, there could be a tendency to use it more as a communication tool, which actually puts you in connection with people uh, versus a comparison tool, which just makes you more depressed about your current situation. Yeah. Two things come to mind. One was about men's choices in flashy things. And for so I was thinking about cars. I was actually hesitant to mention the teenage girl part because I think a lot of teenage girls, well, first they're, they're kind of taught to do these things and then we judge them for doing them. And so it's kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. That's it. No, we're looking at a, a cultural perspective, not blaming individuals. Yeah. And I think, uh, there was this quote where it was like classic art. Somebody paints a picture of a, uh, like a half nude woman. And in that it's like, we're admiring the woman's body. And it's all, oh, it's like picture of beauty or something like that. But then if, as soon as they put a mirror in her hand, then it's vanity. And we like <laughs> condemn her for doing it yet with or without the mirror. We're still, that painting was there to enjoy the woman's appearance. It's like, who's really the one that's fixating on her appearance? Cause it's just kind of like, we're forcing this on the interpretation, I guess. Uh, it's just kind of ingrained sexism but the other one was um it turns out that okay so men this was another book i read was uh when men behave badly it was a darker side of this study of human sexuality and in that one it was saying that men have two general strategies and i think it's a more of a gradient than it is a binary so it's uh like one to 100 somewhere where one might be a guy runs around as a serial philanderer i guess like just running around constantly having sex with as many women as possible and this is more of like a spray and pray approach to reproduction where you have paternity uncertainty and these guys tend to have flashier cars uh, whereas a guy who has a more modest vehicle tends to be the more monogamous get married and defend your your mate as much as possible strategy <laughs> so like zuckerberg for instance he doesn't drive a flashy car was pointed in that book because they're saying that he he is married and as far as we know he's not running around in her as least we haven't caught him doing so and he drives like a $30,000 car. So it's that's kind of interesting when it comes to keeping up with the Joneses because it kind of implies that maybe perhaps certain uh, approaches to sex or sexual strategies, mating strategies, uh, might be more likely to lead to like the heat on a treadmill and getting bigger and nicer gadgets because... I mean, like a lot of guys are kind of taught that our value is women are taught a lot of times their values in appearance, whereas guys are taught a lot of the times that our values in what we have our possessions and not the measure of our characters. And so this also kind of reinforces the whole cycle, which I mean, all of that is reinforced by the media in, in general because it wants us to buy as much as possible. Right. Well, uh, in general, I guess, yeah. In general, I mean, the economy is like the, think about what the messaging has been for the pandemic, like the economy, the economy, but we're literally throwing human lives into the machine to keep this economy from taking even a minor hiccup. Basically, I guess the bottom line of affluenza also, and a bunch of everything we're talking about is that the economy should not be the end in itself. If the economy brings ruin and depression and suicide and war and death, then having a strong economy is not great. 
war really stokes the fires of economy, but that doesn't mean we want to do that. That's ridiculous. So we need to reassess the things that we're, we're evaluating. And this is all a bit uh, off track, I realize. No, it relates to the, this idea of the gross domestic product as the end all be all. We've talked about this before Yeah. versus the idea of gross domestic happiness, for example, which is... Yeah, that was, I think, was that Burma that talked about that? Yeah, there's, it's something that's been brought up. The country Bhutan actually tried institutionalize this concept uh, by, by focusing on what brings the most happiness for the people, not necessarily the most stuff. Right. Yeah. Cause right now, our, apparently our economy is doing fantastic, but it seems based on what I can tell uh, that people are not doing great. <laughs> the people who are doing great are the ones that already were doing great. And the people who are doing bad are the ones that are anybody else. It seems a lot of the time moving on to takeaways. Cause uh, I know you're running out of time and so takeaways, uh, mine that I had listed here were one tolerance breaks. If we look at a bunch of the research, I thought was hilarious sometimes with in terms of like whether kind of one of those clinics that takes you in and uh, yeah, residential treatment can help. But like a lot of the time when you look at that is just basically giving them a vacation like setting where they don't have to take care of themselves. Everything is kind of taken care of. Their accommodations are comfortable and they're removed from their daily life. So a tolerance break, if you can afford a vacation, if not going for a road trip, going for a long walk, doing something to shake it up and remove yourself from the thing that is no longer pleasurable. If you can, like cutting back a little bit for a time, just for the sake of being able to re-enjoy it again, resensitize yourself. Like me for coffee. Like if I have a tea in the afternoon, I want it to really give me a boost. I don't want it to be a default so that I have that I'm functioning, you know? I mean, ideally, I guess, and this is what some people online that we've watched have talked about, like quitting it altogether because generally it's not probably not normal and not great to have to constantly be like boosts and lows having to feel tired in the afternoon take another coffee like we're constantly just propping ourselves up chemically and it might just be better to completely cut it out and then just drink i mean if coffee is generally good for you it seems to be good for your heart and a bunch of longevity things but i think you still get a lot of those benefits from just the coffee that's decaf swiss water method would be best (laughs) yes okay number two for the takeaways would be um avoid all news outlets avoid all news frankly i did this for a while i've kind of gotten a little sucked back into it because of reddit but if you avoid all news generally speaking you don't really notice i mean right now in the pandemic we might want to pay attention to like the vaccination rates and the case rates and death rates in our region but as long as you just you can check out those on yourself like on worldometer.com i think it is but generally speaking the news has almost no value. It's just shock and made up stuff and framing things. And if you pay attention, anybody that's consuming a lot of media, you'll notice they're generally shouting all the time, not particularly happy and also not actually doing anything about these things. So it's probably best to just cut that out entirely, even the minor ones, I would say, but I don't know. That's my, my take. I remember one person actually called me a bad person for not watching the news. (laughs) (laughs) You're a bad person. But honestly, okay, you will learn about things. Yeah, because like you should know about the, the bad things that are happening in the world so you can do something about it. But the thing is, are we actually doing anything about it? Second, you'll notice that big news stories, they get brought to you anyway. You will find out about these things. 
And then you can choose whether you want to dig in or not, or just ignore it. And a lot of time you just want to ignore it. Alternatively, I would say to read books. A lot of time with mainstream media, they're giving you a lot of bullshit and they're not actually giving you any real substance. They don't teach you to, to think for yourself. And if you read into the different areas that they're talking about, you'll find that a lot of time it's completely wrong. Like right now, the right wing is kind of screaming about critical race theory and they're going by the most caricatured version of that and basically saying that like white people are the most oppressed in the States. Complete ridiculousness. But if you don't look into it, then you'll think that, oh my God, this is the whole world is burning and falling apart. But like, that's not accurate. So read books, read actual books. <laughs> yeah, read books. Next is spend time in nature. Spending time in green spaces is very beneficial for your health. The Japanese have a concept called forest bathing. It's not actually immersing yourself in anything <laughs> but the forest itself. You don't have to get naked. Just be in a forest and expose yourself to the natural world. Pay attention to the things around you. I don't know, sketch it if you really want to have something to actively do while, while you're there. But just enjoy being in a natural setting. Um, and also get plants in your house if you, you can't get to those things. But if you have like a, an odd plant, you can get them for basically free. There are um, plant groups that they'll give you a clipping and you can just transplant it into a pot and grow it yourself. Having some greenery in your, your place is shown to increase happiness generally. Increase your general mood. Mm-hmm. Spend time with people you care about. Of course, don't be lonely. Create social connections. Spend time developing hobbies and habits. I think we've already talked about that. But one of the interesting things they found in, in affluenza was that... People who spent time on habits, sorry, hobbies that required really expensive buy-ins and expensive tools and stuff actually had less enjoyment for some reason. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, and I think that might be because you're expected to have a lot of enjoyment from it, but I think also it's because... I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, I remember fantasizing about buying a new guitar. And it's interesting because you think buying that new guitar is going to make you sound better, but it doesn't. It just has a better sound quality, which might actually make you sound worse because your playing stays the same. And that can be kind of seductive because it's like you can spend money to to get the skills you want. But really, most of the stuff that matters just requires time and effort and space to do it so that's again why i'm doing that land project but that that seems to be much more important so like learning to work with your hands basically or to develop something or to make something that expresses yourself i think stephen pink talked about this about like autonomy mastery and i don't remember the last one but these things were the things that were related to important and meaningful work relatedness yeah it's uh, self-determination theory it's uh, the definition of intrinsic motivation right yeah do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah this is really a way to step out of the hedonic treadmill if you asked me before we did this think of some ways to step off and i jokingly said well just do it just step off <laughs> you know but but just don't just don't buy stuff <laughs> quit it but that's uh, not very helpful yeah it's like being an, i'm referencing bo burnham <laughs> As an addiction counselor, I'm not going to meet with clients in charge of exorbitant rates to sit there and tell you, well, just stop doing it then. And so what, what actually allows you to stop? Well, intrinsic motivation is the key part here. Uh, there's two types of motivation. In, intrinsic, which is internally, and extrinsic, which is like external rewards, like uh, someone giving you money or praise. One is very short term, and the other is, is sustainable and long term. So people think extrinsic rewards like money and praise are the thing that's going to create the the, the 
reward, the incentives. And we, we see that in workplaces. <laughs> I like that example you gave in terms of the, the survey of, look, money buys happiness. People believe it. But in reality, it can actually kill intrinsic motivation. When you give someone an external reward, the research has shown that their internal motivation to do it goes down. And now they're only doing it for the reward versus something that they deeply actually find meaningful or enjoy. So you, it's kind of a counterproductive thing often to incentivize people in these external ways. How do you build intrinsic motivation then? Well, you do this through these three components of autonomy, mastery, and, mastery and relatedness. Autonomy is is really facilitating a sense of um, a person being able to control their situation. Mm. And so you're, you're building a sense of self-trust. You're looking at validating things that they're already doing. You're building new things that they could do, uh, small things on their own and, and facilitate this sense of independence. Uh, so that's autonomy. Competence is looking at building in small wins over time, not nothing too big all at once because then if they can't do it and they fail, it kind of lowers the motivation. But kind of having these small consistent wins over time facilitates a sense of mastery. And then relatedness of how do you meet your, your need for social connection? Hmm. Yeah. Not relatedness in a comparison way of I'm going to show everyone I'm so great and then they're going to love me because that's, that's the opposite. Uh, but truly kind of coming into connection. And so when you can get these three things working, uh, particularly around someone's core values, you're getting a long-term intrinsic motivation. You're off the hedonic treadmill uh, and you're really pursuing something that that uh, matters. It kind of reminds me of, I know we're just throwing it out, listener, we will wrap this up soon enough, but yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of when I was studying piano as a kid, I had no autonomy. I was not allowed to choose whether to do it or not. I was forced to, to practice a half hour a day. A lot of the songs I was just forced to do because they were for a competition or something like that. And I just hated it. But then, and there's, so there's no relatedness, there's no autonomy, but there is mastery. So it's got one piece, but not that I care about it. Well, my parents would use it as a punishment too. So if I wouldn't, if I did something wrong, I'd have to practice even more. Great way to kill motivation, by the way. Ooh. Yeah. It was also a requirement for me to, to do anything I wanted to do. So I had to, I had to finish practicing. So then uh, in high school, I picked up the bass guitar. And the reason I did this is because I wanted to play with my friends. So I had the relatedness. I could pick up this instrument and if it got good enough, then I could start jamming with my friends. I did it by choice. So I have autonomy and it's related to a skill set I have so I can easily start working on mastery. I know how to do that given my background in piano. And what was funny was that in high school, they started threatening to take away my bass <laughs> and kind of reinforce the intrinsic motivation because it's it's I had a fight to continue to be able to play, which is kind of a weird turnaround. But I wanted to pull in this last piece was it's sort of related it was um well two pieces actually one was focusing on progress which was scott adams he recommend always having a skill that you're constantly slowly improving at so like a language or an instrument it's something that you can just keep chipping away at and you'll feel like you're getting just slightly better as time goes on it's not like something that is not rewarding continually like say i found programming to not be very rewarding because you'd have to each leap you'd have to put a lot of time and effort in and to feel a feeling of success took a lot more effort than say playing a song. And the last piece was um, from Dr. Ellen Horn's book, How We Change, about paying attention to having a having perspective on where you are versus where you want to go and how long it realistically will take to get there. So people often when they pick up an instrument, they say, I just ha don't have the talent. But I think now thinking about it, it comes from them wanting to be a superstar. And then as soon as they start playing, they see that they're actually trash. They have no skill yet. Mm -hmm. And they believe that if they had talent, they would have more skill than they already do. 
and they are put off because it's just so many steps to get to where they want to be because in their head they're not accurately assessing their position they think that they're kind of going to start at an intermediate level when obviously nobody does yes that's a social comparison orientation to your future self yeah yeah actually that's true you're comparing your imagined self to your your real self when you start playing and it's just unbearably painful and you always fall short yeah. And so the theory of intrinsic motivation, these three ingredients, in simple terms, what this gives you is purpose. Yes. And really, purpose is the antithesis of the hedonic treadmill. The treadmill, it's like, it's like purposeless. It's like the exercise bike. It's like you just kind of... It is done for the sake of doing it. Yeah. There's no purpose there. It's like a very pleasure oriented which doesn't mean jumping off of it means no pleasure it's just having pleasure like epicurious was talking about but also with purpose and the ingredients of purpose uh, are these these things uh, which also relates to the concept of passion and so there's so many other concepts that i want to talk about here and maybe we can do another episode on on motivation and, and really oh yeah that is the one you're gonna get end up doing there <laughs> get deeper into this yeah so stay tuned yeah, I had something else that came to mind when you were talking, but I think that's probably good enough. We can save that for next time, friends. <laughs> All right, so thanks for tuning in. We're I'm thinking about setting up a Patreon because we, we would love to publish more frequently. It's just that it's, it's a bit of a burden to have to do it every week. But I like recording more frequently. You can tell we were kind of uh, rough at the beginning here. But yeah, I'm looking at setting that up and uh, hopefully somebody will be willing to support us and help us to continue growing because we like doing this. And hopefully you like us doing it. Hopefully it's been valuable and uh, stay tuned if you want to hear more about motivation in the future. Yep. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye. In your tidy little office. Neat and tidy. Is it actually tidy or is it just the stuff that can be seen on camera? Um, it's generally quite tidy. It's uh, not right now because I have pillows and blankets all around me to do the sound dampening.